Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Can I say it's really good to be back? And if you are joining us for the first time, my name's Robert, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the process of going through a study in the book of Acts. And we're looking at the history of the early church. Man, I feel so nervous. The history of the early church. And we're looking at the second part of a message that was started um, quite some time ago. We're looking at the second part of Acts chapter 9, part 2 of the conversion of Saul, and particularly like a subtopic within our main theme, our main topic, is becoming the person that you should. Becoming the person that you should. And we're going to be looking at chapter 9, running from verse 23 to 31. So I'm going to start reading. Acts 9, verse 23. Now, after many days were passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the the, the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. This for me is one of the most um, memorable chapters in the Bible. Acts chapter 9. When I think about memorable chapters, I think about chapters like Genesis chapter 3, which talks about what? The fall of man. Then I think about chapters like Exodus chapter 20, which talks about what? Ten Commandments. How about the 23rd Psalm? Everybody knows that one, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Matthew chapter 24, eschatology, the last days. And then... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you just hear that and immediately you think of of love. When I hear Acts chapter 9, I immediately am reminded about the conversion of Saul. And here we are looking at the second part of this story. We began the first part back in July, nearly seven weeks ago, and had to break because of the Jamaica missions trip. We saw last time that throughout the pages of the Bible, conversion is a key topic. And we see men and women both being challenged to make a choice. Here in chapter 9, Saul has been confronted indirectly through his conscience And then directly, we see in chapter 9, face-to-face by the Lord Jesus. Confronted and challenged to make a choice. And this choice will determine the future direction of his entire life. And Saul has the choice to be one person or another. 
And as the Lord frequently does, he encourages this man's soul to make the right choice. Just like in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, remember when the Lord said to Moses, Moses, tell the people, I put before you life and death. Choose life. It gives the option, but then encourages the making of the right choice. And here in chapter 9, the Lord, the Lord Jesus says to Saul, Saul, twice, Saul, come on now. Stop, stop persecuting me, first of all. And then stop kicking against the goads. Stop kicking against the pricks. Stop injuring and eventually harming yourself, the Lord says in verse 5. Saul, you've been found to be fighting against God. Give it up. Maybe there's someone here today who has recently found themselves in a similar predicament. Bergerin. Stop fighting it. Stop fighting against God. And Saul does exactly that. I mean, who wouldn't, given what he experienced? And he now becomes the person that he always should have become. And rather than killing, he's now loving. I mean, he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, right? Rather than being violent, brutal, and aggressive, he is now kind, considerate, and non-threatening. Instead of hating, he's now being hated. Instead of persecuting, he is now himself being persecuted. With regard to Saul's conversion, the last time we were together, we saw five specific things. I don't know if you remember. Whoops. Here we go. Five specific things. We saw his rebellion, his recognition, his repentance, responsibility, and his reconciliation. Now as we look further, we will continue to see the result of Saul's spiritual transformation. And the result is going to be a new understanding, new enemies, new fellowship, new birth, new friends, a new public image or identity and lifestyle. And we're going to see a new direction in his life. Now, Saul was a man who was convinced before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was convinced that he could see. But eventually he became blind. And in his experience of being blinded, it actually contributed to him eventually being able to see. The man in verse 22 is not the same man in verse 1. Now, after this amazing and humbling experience, Saul is quickly made aware of the difficult nature of his newfound faith, as he is faithfully instructed by Ananias. In verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, that is Ananias, Go! Remember, Ananias was resisting. The Lord says, "Mm -mm, You need to go. For he, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. He's particularly, specifically chosen by me. I have a purpose for this man's life. And hence, Paul becomes appreciative of a new kind of understanding, a brand new way of thinking. God has got 
a purpose for him that really was in contrast to what he thought was God's purpose, right? He believed that he was doing God a service, as I tried to summarize what we talked about the last time. But now that, that paradigm, that frame of thinking has been completely changed and transformed. He has a new understanding and God has got a great purpose for Saul. But look at verse 16. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In contrast to the wonderful, fantastic, phenomenal call of God, wow, it's balanced with a reminder of difficulty, of challenge, of suffering, which is a major theme throughout the New Testament, starting with the Lord Jesus as our example. Now, how many of you know very often when someone accepts Christ, like Paul does here, and is regenerated or is born again, very often they're not prepared for the hell that comes as a part of the promise of heaven. Very often new believers are not prepared for the hell (laughs) that comes as a part of the promise of heaven. There ain't no crown without a what? Without a cross. And right at the gate from the beginning, new believers need to be made aware of that. And Ananias done a good job encouraging us when we help others to come to know the Lord Jesus, that we help them to brace themselves. Because that's a part of what it means to be a disciple. And here it comes, the hell that is, verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Ain't nothing new, they're just doing what he used to do. I mean, they're unregenerate Jews. And what we see Paul begins to now experience is new enemies. I mean, these were his brethren before back in the day. But now with this new change in his lifestyle, new enemies. How many of you have experienced that one since coming to know Christ? Verse 24 says, but their plot became known to Saul. That is their plot to kill him. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Verse 25, then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a basket, a large basket. Now, if you're reading New King James, you tracked well with me, but if you've got another translation like the Net Bible, New English Translation, or the ESV, English Standard Version, or even the NIV, the Nearly Infallible Version, joke, the New International Version is far from infallible, it's far from infallible. Um, There are no perfect translations. You know what I'm saying? The only thing that is trustworthy, essentially, is the original, that is the Hebrew and the Greek. That's why we try to make an effort to study those languages to some degree with the help of lexicons and Bible dictionaries and so on. But these other translations don't say then the disciples, they say then his, that is Paul's disciples, If you've got that in your translation, let's put your hand up. Okay. Most of us are New King James. And King James, I take it. Okay. Or his followers. I think that's what the NIV says. So so I'm going to go with that translation. Then his disciples, Paul's disciples, took him by night. Now, it's interesting to note that at this time, possibly, it seems that Saul has already been identified as a leader. The brothers got disciples. And they've been attracted to, to following Saul. Now that needs to be the mark of every single one of us as believers because we're all called to be disciples. And a disciple is someone who makes disciples, who make disciples, who go on to make disciples. That's why we're sitting here because someone shared with us 
And by virtue of us coming to know the Lord and becoming a disciple proved that they were a disciple in some way, shape, or form. And it needs to continue. The baton needs to be passed, as it were. And Saul, right at the, I mean, at the blocks, is already making disciples. And we, it becomes a part of the man's lifestyle. Not just because he's, a, he's an apostle, probably mainly because he was an apostle, but not just because he was an apostle. Ah, oh, well, how am I going to make disciples? I'm not, I'm not Saul, I'm not the apostle Paul. Well, we can't, we can't give that as an excuse not to share with others that which we have learned. Because in Matthew chapter 28, that's all the Lord Jesus is asking the disciples to do. He says, go into all the world, right, and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have instructed you. So if all you know is John 3.16, well, the Lord holds you accountable and responsible to share that with somebody. You don't have to, well, I don't know the whole Bible. Yo, maybe in six years' time when I come back from Bible school, then I'll be ready. I mean, goodness. I started Bible school along with Mark 5 and Neil Simester on Monday. Started Bible school. Now, check it. Imagine if I waited until I started Bible school, I would not be here teaching this morning. You've got to just go with what you've got. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and be a pastor tomorrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> but what I am saying is be encouraged that the Lord can use you to benefit, bless, and build up someone else. And your responsibility is just to teach, just to share with them what you know. Be a disciple who makes disciples. And Saul's growth as a Christian is clearly evident. And in that we see new fellowship. New fellowship. Saul used to associate with a different category of people who used to think a, a particular type of way, who used to go to particular places used to flex on the next level, right? Now, he's with another group, a completely different group of people. And I think this is one of those um, basics of Christianity that we must all appreciate. And we feel the pinch of it every week. Uh, how much time do we spend with those who are not of the same inclination as ourselves? You know what I mean? It don't mean that you cut off people who don't know the Lord... But we have to be careful how much time, effort, and energy we sacrifice. How much time, energy we spend with those who are not of the same perspective. This is one of the things that comes as a part of the new birth. And as a new believer, it's just one of them things you have to appreciate either rather sooner rather than later. New fellowship. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's one of them verses that I learned way back when I first became a Christian. Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. There we go. That's one thing, you know what I'm saying? But rather expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. This doesn't mean that you go to work and you don't talk to nobody. You're at college and ah, can't sit with no one in the canteen. No. Of course, we have to associate with individuals who are not believers. Furthermore, there's necessity for us to get to know them and for them to get to know us so that our lifestyle, so that the things that we believe in, so that our paradigm begins to affect them. To the point where we can hopefully even shine some light where they'll be embarrassed because of the shameful ways in which they think and behave. Fellowship is talking about getting on a level. And again, as I said, spending inordinate amounts of time, effort and energy, but in the wrong environment with the wrong crowd. So Paul's got a new set of friends. He's having new fellowship. We're going to see a bit more of that in a minute. So <clears throat> then his disciples 
took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Here's a picture of the Damascus Wall. Now, the Damascus Wall is a wall around the city of Damascus in Syria. This is not to be confused with the Damascus Gate, which is in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. I wonder if you could turn there with me real quick. And the reason I'm going to ask you to turn there is because I want you to, I mean, you can be looking up at the screen quite happily, quite lazily. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. I want you to look at it because I just want you to appreciate momentarily just the sweetness of the scriptures. Just appreciate how the Bible kind of explains the Bible and how all of the verses are interrelated. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. It's for those of you who never, never brought your Bible. Shame on you. In Damascus... Remember, it's a completely different portion of scripture. In Damascus, right, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring, Paul writes, Second Corinthians, that's Paul writing, desiring to arrest me. Verse 33, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from their hands. Jigsaw puzzle, got to put it together. And here is a suggested gate, possibly, not definitely, but possibly similar to, if not the very gate that Paul was actually let through the window out of. This is called the Kisan Gate. It's one of the seven ancient city gates of Damascus and is believed to be the gate that the Apostle Paul used to escape the city. Can you see the window? Possibly, potentially, right? The gate is located on the southeast part of the old city. Okay. Geographically, where are we? I mean, I, I mentioned it three times already or so. We're at Damascus, right? Verse 19 and 22 make that clear. Now, as of verse 26, we have a scene change. And it's important to see that. Verse 26, and when Saul had come to where? Jerusalem. Now, completely different place. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, between verse 25 and 26, we have a time disparity or a time difference. Let's look at what happens before Saul ends up in verse 26 in Jerusalem. Let's have a look and see what happens. Um, Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Right? Galatians chapter 1. I think there's a few verses we're going to read here. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Okay, now that parallels with what, with what we've seen so far in Acts chapter 9, right? So was hell bent on marking the church, right? Now, Verse 14, and he goes on to say, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, check it, when it pleased God, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. When it pleased God, Now, that don't mean that you can't resist him. But when it pleased God, it says, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. How many of you remember that time when the Lord called you? And you could be standing at the bus stop 
And no one at the bus stop would hear. But you heard his voice. Like a foghorn. Calling you. And he was doing so through his grace. Saul remembers this time. You hear him make mention of it consistently throughout the book of Acts. Why? Because it reminded him of the time of his new birth. The time of his new birth. Remember we're talking about new friends, new fellowship, new identity, new birth. It reminded him of the time when he was born again, his conversion, when he got saved. Do you remember that? You remember that time in your life? When you were born again. You probably heard it, right? You're either born once and die twice, or you're born twice and you die once. Everyone is born naturally. Right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here, right? You were born once, naturally. Now, if you don't have a, an, another birth, a second birth, if you don't have a new birth and you die, well, you're not just going to die physically, but you're going to experience another death. And it's called a spiritual death, which the book of Revelation says is separation from God in the lake of fire. Starting with hell or Hades, which is the holding place, until the judgment. Born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, naturally, but then you're born again, like spiritually, a second birth, then you only are going to be confronted by, by one death. And that's physical death. It's just like Brother Michael. The only death he's going to ever see is gone now. Just like Sandeep, our brother. They're only going to experience death once. The concern is that if you've not had that second birth, if you've not had that new birth, you're running the risk of having to confront two deaths. Verse 16, the reason God did this, called him for his grace, was to reveal his son in me. For what purpose? That I, says Saul, that I might preach him, God's son, that is Christ, among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Right, you got your Bible open to Galatians 1, right? I did not, verse 16 we are. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, that is, another human, like to validate me. No, says Saul. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. You'd be like, man, I'm a, I just got redeemed. I just got saved. I just got born again. And the apostles are here. Let me go find the apostles. I go rejoice and allow them to rejoice with me that I'm now converted. He says, no. Saul said, I never went up to Jerusalem. Yet. He will, but not yet. To those who are apostles before me. But I went where? I went into Arabia, which is south of Damascus. I mean, Arabia, like Saudi Arabia. That sort of area. Massive area. He traveled south of Damascus. Now, he's going to spend quite some time now in Arabia. Three things. Some suggest that one... Saul went, when he went to Arabia, on a preaching campaign. Personally, I don't agree with that. Some suggest, secondly, that the reason he went to Arabia was because he needed time to be quiet. He needed time to come to terms with the death of his old life he needed time to come to terms with the death of himself. I mean, if you know Romans 6, talks about the fact that when we get baptized, as we're hoping to baptize some of you brothers and sisters soon, when you get baptized, it's a picture of your death 
actually tell a lie, it's a picture of your burial. Because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them, right? And you bury the old person and you come up out of the water into newness of life, leaving the old who? The old you right back down there in the grave. And the argument is that maybe Paul went to Arabia to come to terms with this. And it was during this time that the Lord Jesus reveals himself further to Saul, which he would later call the mystery made known to me by revelation. My gospel, the gospel that I received, which is what I believe. I believe that's what happened to Saul while he was away for approximately three years in Arabia. And you'll see why I say that in a moment. But how many of you know that we all need that? I always get concerned when I see believers, like individuals get saved today and want to be in the ministry tomorrow. Whether that be teaching, preaching, music ministry. I always get nervous. You know, Jesus in the parable of the sower, we don't have time to go into it, talks about that person, the second category, who hears the word and receives it with joy. And you're like, whoa! This person, like, whoa! Like a scorching. They're just on fire. Now, it's not wrong to be on fire, but how many of you know zeal without knowledge is not a good thing? You need some time to settle down. You need some time to sit down like Mary at the feet of Jesus. Don't be trying to be like Martha, hey, rustling pots and pans thinking, oh, I'm doing a good thing. And, you know, everybody needs to eat, so let me get the food ready. And, hey. And then you get stressed. And you find yourself at the end of your tether to the point where you're getting frustrated with Jesus. How many of you know you can get frustrated with God? And very often it's because you're in a place you ain't supposed to be. You're like, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to come and help me? Huh? Eh? Okay, so what, Jesus is taking orders now from Martha, from frustrated Martha, from Martha who pick up something that he never gave her. Excuse me, Martha. I'm not going to tell Mary to come and join you. Really, you need to come and sit your behind down like Mary because she's chosen the better part, the better place. Excuse me. And I'm always concerned, you know what I mean, when a new believer wants to do this, that, and the other. Fantastic. You don't want to quench their zeal, like throw a bucket of water and quench them. But... You need to put a strong arm around them, like a father or like a mother. I say, come, take a seat. And anytime you ask them to take a seat and they don't want to take a seat, you know something's wrong. But that's another message for another time. The third suggestion, some say that the three years where Paul goes into Arabia were deliberate compensation for the three years with Jesus which the other apostles had had, but Saul had not. Being, as he says, I quote, one born out of due season. Remember? As he puts it. Well, for whatever reason, he went to Arabia. That were clear. He went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years, we're still in Galatians 1, right? Then after, then after three years, at which point Saul was forced to leave the city in a basket undercover because of the persecution in Acts 9 verse 23 where the Jews are plotting right to kill him. He says, I went up then at that point to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Probably seen Peter for the first time and also James one of the other apostles, but no one else, then check it. I mean, he's already been away for three years. No one don't even know where he is, what's going on, right? Then 14 years later, we will see Saul, who would then be known as Paul, back in Jerusalem 
in Acts chapter 15. I'm saying, you know what? Don't try to grow up too quick. There ain't no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. And I mean, look at Jesus, a classic example, 30 years. 30 years before he got into any kind of ministry. Yet what we want to do is, we want to, we want to prepare three years for 30 years of ministry, where Jesus prepared 30 years for three years' ministry. Now, I'm not saying that's definitely the pattern. You can't do nothing until you've been here. Oh, you're new to South London. Well, you have to sit down for 30 years before we can allow you to work in children's ministry. Uh-uh. Especially nowadays. I mean, we're desperate for help in children's ministry. <laughs> no, but we do say at least six months before you get into any kind of ministry. So we got a chance to get to know you. Vital. The Bible says, know those who labor among you. And then also you got an opportunity to get to know us, right? Where was I? 14 years later, we're going to see him in Acts 15. So even, even Saul, because the impression you get from the text is that immediately he's on it. You know what I mean? All right, back to Acts chapter 9. As we digressed and interjected. Verse 26, and when Saul had come now, like we're seeing, to Jerusalem. All of that stuff happened between then. Three years later, he tried to join the disciples. And we've seen it's been at least three years since Saul was last in Jerusalem. 36 months have passed since he left the city. A proud, talented young Pharisee with brilliant worldly prospects. The honored agent of the Sanhedrin commissioned to stamp out Christianity at Damascus. Well, he now returns as a disciple of him who he sought to destroy. Verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, check it, he didn't go to visit his old pals. He didn't go visit with his old friends from the Sanhedrin. No. Remember verse 1 of this chapter? Who did he go and see? His brethren, the high priest to get letters to murder the Christians. He's not going to look for the high priest now. He probably will at some point. <laughs> like Jesus when he went and tore up the temple, right? He probably at some point will go looking for the high priest to have words with him. But not now. Why? Because, look. Oh. Oh, we passed that. Because he's got new friends. His old friends are his old friends. He'll sit them and say, hi, what's going on? It's good to see you. But he ain't getting on a level with them like he, yeah, wagwan, yeah, boy, you know what, blah, 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 ray, 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 yeah. Who you on? I ain't on nothing. Cool, man, let's just jam in it. No, he ain't on that no more. Because he's got a new set of friends. Saul has a new group that he feels the need to associate with. But initially, without success, look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. <laughs> but they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. Just like Ananias. The disciples are not convinced at this point that this new Saul is the genuine article. They were filled with skepticism and fear. Presumably... They had not heard about nor seen him for three years. The bread ain't been on the scene, as I mentioned earlier. But true to his disposition and the meaning of his name, in steps the son of encouragement, Barnabas. That's what his name means. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Thank God for Barnabas. He's a link breader. You know, sometimes very often you find it hard to speak to that person. You come into maybe a, a, a church like this and you're kind of like new and invited. You don't know nobody. So wonderful when someone steps up and goes, what's going on, sis? 
what's going on, bruv? My name's, my name's Barnabas. Come, let me introduce you to the rest of the mandem. Come, let me introduce you to the rest of the sisters. It's so wonderful, someone to bridge the gap. And it's a gift. It's a gift. And also, it is something that can be developed. Some of us find it harder than others. But how important it is, how vital it is. No one could trust this guy, but in steps Barnabas and took him and, check it, took him, like, come on, bruv, it's all good. Took him and brought him to the apostles. Again, probably to Peter and James, and he declared to them how, you know what? He's seen the Lord literally visibly on the road. That'll get your attention, right? What? <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's the apostle, it's Peter. You've got to come good, right? You'd be like, hmm? Yeah, and that the Lord spoke to him, the text says. And how he, so, how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. You know there's got to be some kind of change in your life if you're functioning after this fashion. Saul has evidently a new public image. What you see now, whoa. See, this is going to contribute to helping the apostles to realize that something has genuinely changed. How are we going to know that there's been any change in your life? How are you going to know there's any change in my life? Unless publicly we begin to see something. A new public image, a new, not private, a new public identity. And a new public lifestyle. Can you see that in verse 27? As a result of his testimony, Saul was now accepted into the Christian brotherhood. Into the Christian fraternity. Verse 28, so he was with them at Jerusalem for approximately two weeks, coming in and going out. So Saul is now a fully-fledged member of this new society, this new family. First at Damascus with Ananias, when he says, brother Saul. Now in Jerusalem with the big guns, Peter and James. I mean, how amazing that must have been. What was it like for Peter and James to walk down the streets of Jerusalem with Saul, Saul of Tarsus? I mean, there'd be people like, wait a minute. Did you, did you hear about what happened this morning? No, what are you talking about? Yeah, walking down Street Street. Because you know there's a street in Jerusalem called Straight, right? Walking down Street Street. <laughs> Peter and James, yeah, what's, what's unusual about it? Yeah, Peter and James, but... With Saul of Tarsus. Man, I'd be like, nah, man, I don't believe that. That's madness. Nah, that, ain't, that can never be true. I mean, what was that like? I mean, what was it like for Peter and James? Oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> like they must have really had their eye on him all the time. Always got their eye on him. At the, you know what I mean? At the corner of their eye, always watching him, just in case. I don't know if, I don't know if Simon drew for that sword <laughs> that he used to have. <laughs> just in case to defend himself. That's me adding to the text, right? I mean, but, how did, and how did it feel for Saul as he walked down the streets of Jerusalem now with his arch enemies? May God help us. One of the brothers this morning was praying just before the service started. You know, just about the, about the need for us to to be willing to appreciate people's differences. When people, especially when people come into our family. When people come into our environment. We have to be careful. And we know that these, these tensions, you know what I'm saying? We know that they exist. We know that there's a dynamic. We'd be fronting, we'd be lying. We wouldn't be true to ourselves if we didn't. Because we all experience it to some degree with each other, right? There's something quirky, there's something strange, there's something funny, there's something unusual 
We all experience that dynamic, but we've got to be careful that we bop down the street anyway. He's a brother. Standard. Now, if he begins to show signs that he's not, then we draw for 1 Corinthians 5. And then we use that which is necessary to separate ourselves from those who call themselves a brother, but they're not. But until such time, we've got to walk with one another and, be, and rejoice in being seen with one another. This is my family now. This is me. Regardless of what you might have seen or, or heard, this is me now. New public image, new identity and lifestyle. He's with them. Thank the Lord for Ananias and for Barnabas. Good brothers who erred on the side of grace. And can you see that? Check it. True conversion always leads to church membership. Now, I'm not trying to slip something in at this point, knowing that we're in the process of implementing church membership, because I'm not talking about church membership in a formal sense, like signing documents and making commitments, quote-unquote. Can you see that true conversion always leads to church membership? You can see that Saul is now a member. He's rolling. And all church membership does, you know, as we will talk about, all church membership does is kind of just put a title over something that already exists. But it's helping us to say, hey, yeah, yeah I'm a member, but I really wasn't sure what that meant. Oh, now I see what it means, and yeah, I'm down with that. That's me. Gives an opportunity to redefine what it means. But here we're talking about in a spiritual sense, not so much in a formal sense. But true conversion always leads to church membership. Different parts of the body getting linked up with other parts of the body. It's not only that. It's not only that converts must join the Christian community. That's why you're a believer. You're not, in a, you're not part of a community. You're in trouble. You're heading for a fall. And some people do it particularly and specifically and in determined fashion. Like, I'm cool. I don't need the fellowship thing. I don't need to really link up. Hmm. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says you've got to be careful if that's your perspective. Because what does it say in Proverbs 18 1? It says, a person that isolates themselves seeks their own desire. And they rage against all good wisdom. And I'm saying. So we got to be interrelated and integrated. Whether it's a large community. I mean, I was going to say like this, this ain't even large. You know what I'm saying? Or it's a small community. You have to be linked. You have to be connected to other believers on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? It's vital. But also, not only... Not only must converts join the Christian community, however large or small that might be, but also that the Christian community must welcome converts and look for converts and aim to make converts. Like man's like Mike and man's like Shagan will agree because then man's a get like the got the evangelists at heart. And I mean we gotta welcome new converts in and look for them. Especially those from different religious, ethnic, or social backgrounds. John Stott said, There is an urgent need for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who overcome their scruples and hesitations and take initiative to befriend newcomers. In a word, what we need are more disciples. In addition to his new reverence for God and new relationship with the church, Saul recognized that he had a new responsibility to the world, which was to be a witness, 
to be a witness. This man had a completely new direction in life. So many new things that take place at conversion. Now we see that this man completely has a new direction in life. He's become a part of the New Direction crew, <laughs> if you like. Jesus on the road to Damascus had, check it, clearly had his future outlined. He was to be, immediately the Lord helps him to appreciate that, he was to be a suffering servant and a witness. How many of you appreciated that when you first got saved? How many of you appreciate that now? That you're called to be a suffering servant and a witness. You know, you have to be genuinely saved to see this as a glorious calling. That is to be a suffering servant and a witness. He was... God's instrument of choice, commissioned to proclaim the things which he had seen and heard. You know, much modern witnessing is not Christ-centered. Saul was now to bear a Christ-centered witness. And he does, verse 20 and 22, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, proving that he was the Christ. See? It's, 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 it's Christ-centered. Saul's witness was effective. We see that because he was given the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 17. It's not just being able to preach a good message or formulate great sentences. All of that without the power of the Spirit is useless. And also we see that he was courageous. How much we need courage in the day in which we live, where individuals will be, be willing, even through stammering lips and weak knees, trembling, but courage to stand up. In Jeremiah, it says, in the last days, they're going to call good evil and evil good. Now, who's going to stand up and, 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 and combat that? He was courageous, verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, see, and disputed against the Hellenists, and they attempted to kill him. To some degree, he's probably too bold for his own good, it seems. Verse 30, when the brethren found out that they were attempting to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea, Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. They said, you're not fam." See, and that's another blessing. This is, Saul, this is like Saul going to become Paul the Apostle. It's like, hey, how do you tell him anything? But the apostles never petted. The disciples said, you know what, bruv, come here. And he had to come. And they sent him away. And he had to obey. You see, you're never, you're, you ain't never a good leader if you ain't being led. Don't, don't follow nobody who is out there saying, follow me. Uh, well, who, who are you following? Don't watch that. That's follow me. Wait, wait, what? You started the church. Where did you come from? Which, you know, who's your pastor? You get me? Who are you associated with? Always get nervous when you don't know them. You can't, they can't answer them questions. Like someone just popped up from out of nowhere. Like self-appointed. It's dangerous. Saul submitted himself... To those who were above him. And he took their good advice. Otherwise he would not have gone on to do what he went on to do. For the wisdom of the disciples and the apostles. Sent him away. Amen. Now without the definition that it deserves. May I just mention that Saul suffered. His witness was costly. I'm nearly finished. 
His witness was costly. Saul suffered for his testimony. You know, the, the word witness means martyr. And so many witnesses were killed that the two words became synonymous, witness and martyr. Verse 16, the Lord said in Acts 9, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And I know there are some in our, in our small contingent that are experiencing that right now. Suffering for the gospel. You identify with Saul, but you identify ideally and most importantly with Christ Jesus. Because he suffered in many different ways. Verse 31. Wow, look at the result of God saving this man. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. That's like saying England, Scotland, and Wales. I mean, the whole of Israel. The whole land of Israel had peace. And were edified. I was at a prayer meeting with some of the other Calvary Chapel pastors, kind of local in London, Ducklands, Twickenham. Um, where's Matt at? Tunbridge? No, it's not Tunbridge Wells. It's somewhere in Surrey. Where? Sorry? Leverhead. Matt out in Leverhead. Met with them guys yesterday and we were praying. And Matt said, you know what? We've got to be encouraged, fellas. We started praying and he went, wait a minute. I've got to just share this with you. He said, we've got to be encouraged when we pray because he said, about, about three weeks ago, or three, a certain time ago, they started praying for three pastors in the city who weren't even saved. And they were just putting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock in, the, in terms of the gospel. And he it, it was, it was driving him mad. He was like, you mans are supposed to be pastors. But he realized they're not even Christians. It was just a job, you know what I mean, where they get paid. And they drink wine and all of that stuff, right? So he said, Lord, he began, he began to pray one of those imprecatory prayers. You know, imprecatory Psalms? Where, where David says, Lord, break the teeth of my enemy. Well, he didn't say that. He said, he just said, he said, Lord, he said, please, Lord, these men ain't even saved. They are a hindrance. Please, Lord, just move them out of the way. Either save them or move them. It was like within like three weeks. One of them handed in his resignation. The other one retired. And then another one is got, he's, he's, he's handed in his resignation. He's leaving in a year. And he said, you know what, fellas? Let's be encouraged that God hears prayer. Let's pray. Now, why did I mention that? Because look at what happens as a result of one man getting saved. The Lord... Rather than move him out of the way, which he could have, he saves him. And the effect is national. Oh, my gosh. I mean, could that happen today? Where the Lord could save one person. Maybe that, what, that person that you don't want to pray for, like Saul. Who wants to pray for him? You only want to pray, that, pray God's judgment, like call down fire from heaven on him. Right? But no. He gets saved and it, everything changes nationally. Let's be encouraged that we must pray because the Lord could do that. He can do that. He did it. He can do that. And walking, huh, the, the, the church had peace and were edified, were built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. We see five beautiful things take place as a result of this man's salvation, which I'm not going to go through. But they're in there. Five things in verse 31. Look at the result of the conversion of one man. He who was hated has now become a hero. Or will at some point become a hero. Past, present and future. We look back at the apostle Paul who was Saul and we're like. He's heavy. So Paul's heavy. He's a hero. And we need heroes. Because we go cinema and watch them things and get excited, don't we? When we see heroes overcoming the evil and the baddies. 
We get excited, and rightly so, because it's right for good to triumph over evil. Saul's our hero. Paul is one of, our, is one of my heroes. But we, keep, we follow him as he follows Christ. Christ is our ultimate superhero. The man at the beginning of this portion of the text is not the same man at the end of this portion of the text. He became the man that he always should have been. How tragic it is when a man or a woman does not become all that they should have been. Spiritual transformation. It brings about, I wonder if it's still there. It brings about a new understanding. It brings about new enemies. It brings about new fellowship. And every single one of us, is, if we've been converted, should be able to identify with every single one of those points. New fellowship. New birth. New friends. How exciting is that? Oh, I'm not joking. I'm serious. New friends. New, a new public image. Not a private one. New public identity and a new public lifestyle. In contrast, we're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be sanctified. It means to be distinct. What, not, what in the way we dress? No, that's religion. But there's got to be something distinct about us. That's identifiable. And in a new direction in life. Question. Are you the person that you ought to be? Or are you being the person that you ought not to be preventing you from becoming the person that you ought to be? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that that was under an hour. And Lord, very often I feel like I have to say so much. Yet, I'm going to trust, Lord, that by your spirit you have said enough. Father, thank you that Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that. We are your workmanship. You handcrafted us. We are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I pray that your grace would be so upon us in this small fellowship. That not so much the quantity, but Lord, in terms of quality. Lord, we would be able to stand back and look at your craftsmanship. Look at your handiwork and say, wow. I look at your life, my brother. I look at your life, my sister. And I can tell that that is why God made you. And Father, that in the midst of that, you are glorified. Because when we see it, Lord, we know it. And it encourages us to lift our eyes and our hands toward heaven and worship you. And so I pray, Father, that today we'd forever contribute to the edification and the building up, Lord, of, of us, your people, in order that we might fulfill your purpose. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake I pray. Amen.